Okay. We are dealing with First Peter where the whole idea is we're strangers, foreigners, aliens, we don't belong here, and some of the ramifications of that. He's just been talking a lot about the persecution that we receive because we don't fit in here. And not only physical persecution, but even people speaking against us and putting us down and things like that, and some of the challenges with that and the attitude we ought to have toward that. And then he comes to this section now in chapter 5 where he has instructions for elders. I think it's challenging to understand the connection. Why is he suddenly talking about elders? Is it that those who were leaders would be even more subject to persecution? You could see that as a possibility. Or is it that in difficult times we need shepherds even more? You could see that. Maybe there's some other connection, or maybe this is kind of random, and he just wants to talk about this. I don't know. Um, but uh, those are a couple possibilities. So would somebody read chapter 5, verses 1 to 5? Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Alright, so Peter is writing exhortations to elders... Um, we see here the conjunction of the three basic sets of terms that are used for elders in the Bible. Elders, shepherd in verse 2, and overseer, as implied by oversight in verse 2. Those three terms mean different things, but they all are references to the same um, function of people. And we'll talk about that a little bit as we go through this. So as Peter writes to these elders... He writes as a fellow elder. This is elder to elder here. You know, he personally understands the responsibilities, the difficulties, the fears, the pressures, whatever it is that elders go through, he writes as one. So evidently Peter was an elder, and, you know, that would give him a little more credibility. I mean, he knows what that's like. He also is a witness of the sufferings of Christ. I mean... He saw them, but I think he means more than that. I think he means he shares in the sufferings of Christ. Uh, he participates in those. And a partaker also of the glory that is revealed. You know, in, in Peter's mind as well as, I, I'd say really in many ways in the New Testament as a whole, suffering and glory always kind of travel together. You know, you suffer to be glorified. And so, uh, he shares in the suffering of Christ, but he's also a partaker of the coming glory. And there is a glory for those who suffer for the cause of, of Christ and faithfulness. And that's the point he's been trying to make in a lot of things he's been saying about the persecution and the suffering is there's a lot of uh, reward for going through all that. So what is he telling these elders? Well, he says, shepherd the flock of God among you. Um, so what's the flock of God? The church. Yeah. That's kind of a funny way to describe it, maybe. But we are God's sheep. We are his flock. And the fact that we're his means that the shepherds need to take good care of the flock. 
you know, if somebody really important asks you to care for their sheep, it would probably be pretty important that you take good care of them. These are the Lord's sheep, the Lord's people. And so the elders need to really take a lot of uh, concern and responsibility. If if we really thought more about Jesus' connection with his people, we'd probably be a lot more concerned about people's souls. You know, be concerned to, to bless them and to help them. Um, so what does it mean to shepherd them? Feed them. I feed them, provide spiritual nourishment, <laughs> teaching, and guide them, guide them <laughs> give them direction, um, away from dangerous things and toward, you know, good pasture and whatever, and protection, protect them from wolves. Yeah, false teachers, wolves, or sins, you know, things like that. Yeah. Um, shepherds have a special responsibility to which sheep? The weakest. The special need sheep. The sickly, the struggling, the straying, the, the you know, the ones that aren't doing good. That's especially a shepherd responsibility. Remember what Jesus said about uh, having a hundred sheep when one of them strays? Leave the ninety-nine and go run after that one that got lost and got, you know, somewhere uh, detoured along the way. So that's a special responsibility of shepherds. It's a pretty big job. Um, who would want it? <laughs> uh, who would want to be a shepherd? From what he says in the next few verses, there might be one that wants it just because he likes the power. Be wrong reasons to want it. What would be good reasons to want it? Help people. Yes, and and to really because you care about the flock of God. Uh, that's that's a concern. You you know you you want the flock to do well. We're going through an elder selection process at Bargersville, and I think our challenge may well be. Does anybody want to do it? Is anybody willing to? Uh, maybe for reasons that are not just bad reasons, but it's a challenging thing. And, you know, um, no one's overqualified. And I think uh, if somebody thinks, oh, wow, this will be fun, <laughs> well, it may be rewarding in the sense you want to serve people. But, wow, it's not, uh, it's not a joke, that's for sure. So he says, exercise the oversight. So, oversight means a little bit more than just uh, shepherding. You know, it means directing, supervising. How far does that go with an elder? So, um, does an elder have any right to um, involve himself in your private life? I mean, you know, you've got what you do at church, you've got what you do in the rest of your life. Is that any of the elders' business? Yeah. Yes. Well, why? He's an elder at church, right? <laughs> but you're part of the flock of God, whether you're in the building or not. Exactly. And your relationship with God involves everything you do, not just what you do in collective worship. And so, yes, 
if if a if a shepherd and an overseer is taking good care of the flock, he's going to be involved in people's personal lives. Um, does he have the right to tell people what to do? Yeah, within limits. No one's going to talk about those limits in a minute. But yeah, an overseer supervisor has that right and responsibility sometimes. So there may be a time that an elder, a shepherd may say, look, this isn't good for you. I don't want you to do this. I don't want you to go there. I don't want you to, you know, uh, this is not the right person for you to marry. This is not the right job for you to take, you know, or whatever. Now, we'll talk in a minute about the lording it over. But but we need to be sensitive to listening to those that God has appointed as, as overseers, as superintendents, just to tell us, you know, the direction to go. But now, he tells the elders how not to do this and how to do it. Not under compulsion, but voluntarily. Um, so what would under compulsion look like? Wait, I have a question. Who's under compulsion? The elder or the... Exercising oversight, not under compulsion. So I think the elder is not to do this... Is not compelled to exercise oversight, but must do it voluntarily. No, I think it's that he's not compelled to exercise the role of an elder. In other words, we shouldn't have a reluctant draftee that just gets pressured into it by the congregation uh, that that's you know he feels like he can't get out of it. You know, he just feels like, oh, if I have to, no, he needs to do it voluntarily. I think that's the point. It, it again, if anybody's just you know chomping at the bit to become an elder, you wonder what they're thinking. But if somebody is you know, realizes the job needs to be done and they can trust the Lord for the strength to do it, they should willingly choose that. You know, you don't want to be in a situation where you just tell somebody, look, you don't have any choice. you got to do this. we got to have you. No, it, because that's not going to work well. You know, somebody who doesn't really want to. So he should willingly choose this. And then he says, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Sorted gain? How would that work as an elder? How would an elder have some relationship to sorted gain? What is sorted gain anyway? Like illegal money or... Or corrupt money or something like that, yeah. So what's that saying for an elder? Not doing this for the paycheck. Right, not doing it for the pay. Or maybe even not doing it because he thinks he can embezzle some funds if he gets in there. You know, that would, that could happen too. You know, you can see either way. Uh, so, do you pay elders? Okay. Yeah, okay. First Timothy 5 certainly authorizes that. You could see, especially in a decent-sized church, how it could be easily a full-time job. So, yeah, it's appropriate to pay them, but an elder shouldn't do it for the money. You know, I think that's his point. Really, we shouldn't do anything in the service of the Lord for the money. Uh, nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. So, don't do it for the power. You know, because you want to control things. You want to run things. You want to tell people what to do. Don't do it so you can boss people around. That's the wrong motivation. Some people like the glory and the power. You know, boy, I want to run things. <laughs> well, that's a bad attitude. That's certainly not the point. 
And so you're not just trying to prove that you can tell people what to do either. Well, I do believe the overseers have authority. They are careful in not abusing that. They don't try to run everything. They don't try to tell everybody what to do. You know, for several years I was in a church that had two really good elders. And one of the things they constantly told us was that they are not the church. They're two brethren in the church. But that, you know, the whole group was the church. And that they weren't the one that was responsible for everything. And and they frequently met with the brethren and listened and worked with us. It wasn't their church. It wasn't up to them to run things. It was very interesting there, which I thought was very appropriate. After I left, it became obvious that the church building needed to be expanded. And the elders went to the deacons and said, you're the deacons, the church building needs to be expanded, you take care of it. That's all they did. They were responsible to plan it, to finance it, to get the job done, and the elders didn't have anything more to do with it. I don't know many elders who wouldn't have felt like they had to micromanage that project, you know. But actually, some of the deacons were way more knowledgeable about construction than what the elders were. They had been chosen by the group to be the servants of the group. Why did the elders need to manage that any more than they needed to manage the serving of the food for the widows in Acts chapter 6? Good elders are not just trying to tell everybody what to do. They, in fact, may delegate a lot of things and get other people involved. But... Um, they are examples to the flock. You know, they are, they're people to follow. They're models. Um, and, and, and they influence. You know, this is not just, you know, I'm telling you, you better do this. This is working with people and helping them want to grow and change and be what they ought to be. So I think this is a pretty, pretty, you know, helpful passage in helping us understand, you know, elders and their role and so forth. Do you have thoughts and comments on those first three verses? Well, he says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Of course, that's the Lord. You know, we're not, no human beings, the chief shepherd. <laughs> you know, he's the chief shepherd, and he is the shepherd. Think about John 10 and various other passages that, you know, describe the Lord as a shepherd, Psalm 23. And so that, those are good passages for shepherds, human shepherds, to model themselves after. And then he says, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders. That's interesting. We understand that the church is to be subject to the elders, right? But why single out the younger men to be subject to the elders? The most likely to cause the trouble? I think so. I think those who have the hardest time submitting are often the younger ones. You know, it's uh, kind of chafe at uh, being, you know, submitting and, and, and obeying. And, you know, you, you, you have, there are rebellious older people. But, you know, I think you, the younger generation has a little bit more of a uh, reputation for rebelling. So it's appropriate to particularly mention to young people, obey your elders. But really, all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another. You know, really, all of us should be humble toward each other, should, should submit to each other. You know, our view of manhood in society is kind of self-assertion and making everybody do what we want and throwing our weight around, nobody can treat me that way. You know, I'll tell, show him who's boss, you know. 
that kind of stuff. We love, you know, asserting our rights. But really, uh, we need to serve each other. You know, the greatest among you is the servant. We need to humble ourselves toward each other. So really, the humility we have toward elders is a subcategory of just our humility toward each other. And we're not trying to, you know, be a big shot. And we're willing to submit and serve and cooperate with others. That's going to, it's going to take that in a church. You're ever going to get your way all the time in a congregation? <laughs> you know, is everything always going to be the way you think it ought to be? Wow. You know, it's not. It's really not. But, what an important thing that we are able to be united and work together. You know, those are such uh, critical things. Um, I've just been uh, working uh, through the Psalms. And uh, just today I typed my outline for Psalm 133. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And it is. But that takes a lot of humility and a lot of submission and a lot of not getting my way and everybody didn't think, well, my idea was great and all that kind of stuff. It takes a lot. and uh, But that, those are the attitudes that lead to our uni- being united. All right, thoughts and comments through verse 5. I think it's also hard for younger men in particular just because they're becoming men. Mm-hmm. And they need to learn how to lead and to take charge and do these things. And at the same time, they're being told, well, yeah, but you can't, you know, don't buck this authority. But And, and the need or the desire to be seen as manly men and, and all of that yes. kind of makes it a problem sometimes. Yes. Yeah, I agree. That is kind of a challenge for us. And so we really need to be, you know, valuing humility. That's what it takes to be a real man. I think we've almost got to change our conception of what manliness is. Manliness is when you're big enough to humble yourself. All right, uh, how about 6 through 11? <coughs> Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Jesus Christ, after you have suffered a little while, perfect, st- establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Okay. So humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. That's uh, the greater humility we have. And think about like this. What if you had somebody who was drowning? Um, and somebody comes to help them. What would you tell the drowning man to do if you were a strong swimmer? Stop struggling, submit, just yeah. just just lay there, I've got you. Yes. And how hard is it to do that if you're drowning? <laughs> you know apparently. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it's hard not to feel like we need to do everything ourselves. It's hard to humble ourselves before God and trust in Him 
we feel more confident if we can do it ourselves. So, you know, but we need to humble ourselves before God and he'll exalt us. So that's a challenge. I think verse 7 fits in with this, although you might not think about this at first. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. We humble ourselves when we cast our worries on God. Instead of feeling like we have to solve all the problems in our life in our own strength. Part of humility is not this sense of fretfulness or what am I going to do, what am I going to do, what about what about this, what about that because when I start feeling that it's when I'm trying to take charge myself feeling like I'm in command and I'm not sure what to do if I'd humble myself and cast my worries on him really worry is self-focused and you know, when I cast those cares on the Lord and trust Him to take care of it, it's hard to trust. Isn't it hard to trust? You've ever done those trust fall things backwards off a ladder or something like that? <laughs> How easy is that? But have you ever done that? How do you really need to do that? How do you, how do you fall? You have to go all the way. Yeah. If you, you try to, stiffen or anything. yeah, you gotta, you gotta just stiffen yourself up and just fall back. If you try to catch yourself and sort of sit down, they're gonna drop you. If you'll do it the right way, it'll be fine. It's just so hard to trust. You're falling backwards, you can't even see the ground. Whoa. That is hard. And it's hard for us to trust the Lord. It's hard for us not to feel like we've still got to hold the reins. We're just afraid to let go. Of those worries and anxieties and, and this fretfulness feeling like I've got to handle this, I've got to do this, what am I going to do about that? Um, really, the more we're able to humble ourselves before the Lord and cast our cares on Him, the more it frees us up to care about other people because we're not so self-focused. Uh, but that is challenging. I mean, it's a lot of humility, a lot of trust and faith and dependence on God. Thoughts and comments there on 6 and 7. Remind me a lot of Jacob all through his life trying to do everything himself and it finally took when he didn't think he could handle Esau and that's when he learned to trust God. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes the Lord has to really put a big one on us before we'll finally realize we can't do it on our own and we've got to have his help. But sometimes as long as we think there's any possibility we can do it on our own, we'll not turn to the Lord and we'll try to, you know, lift ourselves up by our own bootstraps or whatever. <coughs> Really, those are challenging concepts. You can tell Peter's lived or in the real world. And then he warns us to properly prepare for our decisive battle with the one great enemy. Be of sober spirit. That is, you know, be mentally alert. Um, be serious. Uh, recognize the danger. Be on the alert. So it takes really, you got to be mentally, spiritually sharp and ready. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You know, can you imagine if you knew a lion was on the prowl? Neither the sheep nor the shepherd sleep. You know, you're worried about that lion. We need to take Satan seriously and really be mentally up for the fight to turn to God consistently. Satan is trying to do what? Devour. Yeah. 
He's not just wanting to maim us or harass us. He wants to kill us. He wants to destroy us. Um, so that's that's a serious matter. But resist him. You know, firm in your faith. So resist him by trusting in the Lord, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Christians everywhere are facing the same challenge. Don't feel sorry for yourself. Don't think poor me. Nobody has it as bad as I do. They do too, and they're resisting them too. And as we face those battles together, it gives us strength to know that my brother is overcome by trusting in the Lord. I can too. And uh, so he's really, really trying to gear us up for this fight against temptation, fight against Satan and his wiles. And he says, after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all glory who called you to his eternal glory, the God of all grace, rather, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You know, the Lord's called us, by his grace, for sure, to eternal glory in Christ. Um, we need to think more about the glory that we've been called to. Focus our mind on that. We're these aliens here on another planet, but we're headed toward glory. And we're excited about that. We're looking forward to that. We're investing in that. That's our real life. We've got to take our mind and our, our, our vision away from this life stuff and focus on the glory that's coming. Um, and then we turn to the Lord to take care of us, to strengthen us, strengthen us, strengthen us, and strengthen us. You know, he, he says four things that really say all the same thing. He'll perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Not trying to so much distinguish between four separate acts of God as to say, he is the one who's going to take care of you, make you strong, give you the victory, trust in the Lord. We can't do this on our own strength. We never could. We never will. Turn to God. He is the source of strength. He is the one that uh, that will, will uphold us. And to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know, um... <laughs> Who seemed to have the dominion in first century Asia Minor? Rome. Rome. But the truth is, contrary to all human appearances, it's the Lord that has the dominion forever and ever. Rome was going to be a mere shadow of itself in a few generations. God's dominion has never ceased and never will. So trust him and trust yourself to him. There is so much of our Christian life that just depends on trusting him. I don't have it all worked out. I can't take care of myself. I, you know, I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the strength. But God does. So it's a matter of, of those trust falls. You know, just leaving it in God's hands. Just doing what he tells us. Whatever he says, as we try to do humbly, we realize we're not perfect at that. We ask him, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. And we continue just giving ourselves to him. We don't have to have it all figured out, all worked out. We don't have to have the strength in ourselves. He will strengthen us. He will take care of us. So it's a really encouraging passage. It just takes a lot of uh, trust to humble ourselves like that and rely on him. Thoughts and comments? Twelve to fourteen. Through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. 
There are a considerable number of challenging statements in these three little verses. <laughs> First of all, through Sylvanus. Um, look with me for a moment at Acts 15.23. This is a real debatable issue at the moment. Uh, Acts 15.23. They send this letter from Jerusalem to these churches through Judas and Silas. And when it says they sent this letter by them, it's using the same construction as used through Silvanus. So some people think that the same way Silvanus carried the letter in Acts 15, him saying through Silvanus here means that he was the deliverer of the letter. He wrote through Silvanus. In other words, he sent the letter by Silvanus. And him saying that uh, our faithful brother, uh, for so I regard him, might mean you can trust him to, you know, maybe help explain the letter, uh, help give more details or whatever. So that's one view. The only thing that's a little difficult, through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, I've written to you briefly. It's like, uh, does that mean a quick delivery of the letter? Uh, it seems when he says through him, I've written to you briefly, that it's better to think that he was the, you know, scribe, the secretary that wrote the letter. That's a debatable issue. Was he saying so it was through Sylvanus in the sense he sent it through him, or it's through Sylvanus that he wrote it. In other words, he was the one that actually put the pen to the paper. I don't have a strong view. I lean toward the second one. doesn't matter a great deal, but that is a controversial issue. I think Sylvanus is the same as Timothy, or he's the same as Silas. No. Uh, Sylvanus mm -hmm. is Silas, uh, just an expanded form of it. Most people agree with that. He says, I've written to you briefly. I don't know if we'd think of that as being so brief, five chapters. Although, if you look at the end of Hebrews... Hebrews is 13 mm -hmm. chapters, and the end of Hebrews 13.22, But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. So mm -hmm. the Hebrew writer th thought 13 chapters was brief. <laughs> five chapters really is. I think it depends on the subject matter. You know, five chapters would not be brief to talk about some things, but considering all he covered, yeah, he got right to the point, and he said it pretty concisely. So uh, that's the way he looks at it anyway. And what he's doing is exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Stay faithful in the grace that God's given you. And then, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. What in the world does that mean? Um, I have changed my view on that. I used to think that she who is in Babylon was Mrs. Peter, but I believe he's talking about the church at Rome. Now, I have for a long time thought that Babylon is a code word for Rome here. I don't think he means the city of Babylon in Babylon. Uh, and I don't know what else counts for Babylon, so I think this is their way of describing Rome. And I think he means the church that's at Rome. Uh, this ties in with some other passages that we have similar question marks about, perhaps. Like, uh, Second, uh, John, where, uh, let's see, uh, he says, uh, in verse, uh, one, the elder to the chosen lady and her children. And then in verse 13, the children of your chosen sister greet you. 
and some passages of Revelation that talk about children. And I used to think these were all talking about individuals, but I've come to decide I think they're talking about churches. So I think he's really sending a greeting from the church in Babylon. Um, so why does he say Babylon if he meant Rome? I mean, they did use the word Rome. Some people say, well, he wanted to hide who he was really talking about. Why? That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, I think it's because of this. Babylon in the Old Testament represented what? The enemy. Yes. Power. Yes. Captivity is what I'm thinking about. Yeah, it represented really all those things and a lot more. But it's where they were sent into captivity. They were in exile. Ding, ding, ding. Who is Peter writing to? Exiles. Exiles, aliens, foreigners, away from their true home. So I think this almost bookends with the beginning of the letter, where he's writing to the foreigners who are dispersed abroad. These are living as an aliens in an alien culture, exiles. And so she was in Babylon. There is a sense in which all of us are in Babylon. Um... You know, so that uh, that seems to me to maybe to be kind of another reference to the idea of just uh, being pilgrims here. You know, if it was Peter's wife, why say she resided in Babylon? And why not give her a name? So it, I think it's better to take this as the church in, in Rome, but maybe using Babylon in the sense that they are in exile, as we all are, away from our true homeland. Um, and it's not at all uncommon for the churches uh, in the first century to be identified by the cities where they were located. Uh, so does my son Mark. Not sure, but I suspect John Mark, who then is connected closely with both Paul and Peter. Um, so, that's a lot in verses 12 and 13. And uh, not everybody agrees with all that. So do you have some comments and questions or disagreements on all that? Why did you used to think that it was Peter's wife? Because I didn't like the idea of thinking of him, you know, referring to churches like this. It seemed kind of weird to me. It seemed almost institutional. Different explanation. Yeah, so I just preferred, you know, to avoid that. But I changed (laughs) because I decided Second John really referred to churches and partially because of, like, other passages, um, you know, the woman and her children in Revelation, Jezebel and her children in Revelation 2, I began to see that I think that's a more common expression for a group and its followers and things like that. And so I just kind of decided I needed to get with the program on all of those and quit being obnoxious. So you had a problem with referring to a church as like a she, like a yeah, lady. Like a, like almost seemed like an institution. That okay. doesn't really mean anything to me. It seemed like an institution. Yeah. Seemed like, I don't know. It just didn't seem like the right way to do it. But. Okay. <laughs> but I've decided, well, I didn't know what the right way to do it was. <laughs> Sometimes, I mean, some of these things are not things that there's a tremendous amount of super objective evidence for. Right. I mean, you can certainly make the case that it's a person being Peter's wife I mean, that's a little more like, well, 
I mean, does he say enough to let you know that? Unless it's talking yeah. about his son, but I don't think his son was his real son here. So, <laughs> so his wife's probably not his real wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think. <laughs> so, so I just think it's ultimately turned out to be simpler and more straightforward to take these references as references to churches, which is probably what the majority of people do anyway. I wanted to know why he interjects um, Sylvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him. Me too. Like, why did he, he defending? The, yeah, why did he feel the need to clarify that? Like, obviously he just called him faithful, so obviously he regards him that way. <laughs> I guess he was wanting to uh, make sure they knew he thought a lot of Silas for whatever reason. I don't know. That's a good question. Like, to me, that actually undermines his faithfulness. And, like, well, he just makes it sound like someone else is contradicting. Yeah. Maybe that's it. Yeah, maybe yeah. so. Maybe somebody was questioning whether Sylvanus was really a faithful brother. Well, I think he is. I don't know. You could do that mirror reading. It's always a little risky because we don't know the other side of it, but maybe. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But I mean, if he said our faithful brother, well, yeah. So I regard him as kind of understood. If you say it, it's okay too, maybe. Mm-hmm. Anything else on twelve and thirteen? Well, greet one another with a kiss of love. You know, which I think again fits in with the theme. We are family. We are the extraterrestrials, and we need to bond together. You know, and we need that sense of family, that sense of closeness. I think, so I don't think this is just saying, oh, make sure you stick with the kissing customs. It's saying develop a warm relationship with each other. Um, You know, it's hard to get mad at somebody you just kissed. And, you know, <laughs> going back to Stock and Solomon. <laughs> I'm not talking about a kiss on the lips, for crying out loud. But, uh, and, and, you know, I think it's just this sense of closeness, this brotherhood that you, you see. Obviously, I think kissing was cultural. It's kind of weird for us to kiss like that. In fact, you almost never see that in America. But maybe, maybe for us, I mean, I don't think he's even trying for them to mandate a specific greeting as much as saying be warm and close to each other. Maybe for us, you know, give each other, uh, you know, uh, greet each other with a, with a hug of love. You know, we're... A warm handshake. <laughs> Handshakes are awfully formal. You know, I'm not sure a handshake really gets the idea. But, uh, you know... Um, um, you know, a hug or sideways hug or whatever. You know, a sideways hug of love. <laughs> you know, if it's uh, if it's an opposite gender thing or whatever. You, you know, but I mean, it's the idea of there needs to be this close bond. We are the only, you know, foreigners around, and and we're in an alien culture, and we need each other, and we need to be close to each other. Uh, and so, I mean, I think these statements mean something, and. You know that we tend to be too distant and detached from each other. We tend to be, we tend to let bitterness and resentment build up with some people, and then with others, it's just almost indifference. You know, we just really, really care about each other as much as we should. Maybe because we're too caught up in this world stuff, and it does. It's not. Is it? Is it that exciting to be close to our brothers and sisters in Christ? Maybe it isn't. You know, they're kind of a nuisance or whatever. So, I mean, I think 
Peter's trying to emphasize that relationship. And then peace be to you all who are in Christ. So Christ, of course, is the environment of our life. And, uh, you know, peace is, is kind of uh, desiring the well-being. Um, so, all right, thoughts and comments on any of that? There's, like, a lot of cultures that do that kiss thing. There are. Maybe we're more weird in that we don't do it. I don't know. You know, I think so, but I think it does depend on the culture. I mean, Brazilians used to be bigger with this than they are now, but they are pretty kissy. But it's not normally married men and married women. It's women with women and women with unmarried men. And it's gone it's gone more more now it's one or two but the tradition and I've seen it so many times is the three the and you wonder how in the world they don't end up hitting their head against <laughs> each other because they do it so fast always the same side yeah I don't know how they figure it out you know I really don't but I've seen them do it just lickety split and it's just uh, they kiss the air you know but it's uh, it's still a closeness I mean you can't do that without getting very close to somebody <laughs> You know, I mean, they're kind of touching the cheek, you know, and so it's intended to be an affectionate sort of thing. But now I noticed in Mozambique, they were more distant than we were. I mean, I was used to Brazil where leave taking means you speak to every single person before you leave. There it's like, just go. Don't say anything to anybody. And it just seemed, seemed really weird to me. They, they, even when we left, there really wasn't hugs and, you know, much of anything. And I, I think it was just cultural. I don't think they just had that. So I guess it probably depends on where you are. But I think we need to develop a Christian culture of closeness, however that needs to work for us. A super secret handshake. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not big on this handshake thing as being the same thing. But. What about the double, like, pastor handshake where they grab your hand? Maybe that's better. Yeah, I, I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> No, whenever I see kiss, I always think of, like, kiss on the lips. So, like, my first thought is not even the, like, friendly kiss, or, you know? Yeah, yeah, I don't, so don't, really, don't think about kiss on the lips. Yeah, I don't think that's weird. what we're dealing with. I mean, maybe you could kiss the cheek or kiss the hand, but, I mean, I'm used to Brazil where they're strictly kissing the air. You your lips never beat anything. <laughs> Unless you miss. If you both... <laughs> it would be hard to miss. No, uh, if you both don't. went the same way. They don't, they don't do it. I don't know how. I don't know if they give each other some kind of sigh. Okay, we're starting on this side, guys, or what? <laughs> but maybe they do it really on, well. Maybe you always start on your right. I wondered about that. I, I don't know. I need to analyze that sometime or ask them. Because so I nobody has ever done this to you? Oh, yeah. So how have you not hit their face? Well, it's kind of, that's exactly right. They don't do it typically with me, because I'm an American and they know Americans don't kiss. So, it's when, and it is really more common anymore in Brazil to do one, or at most two. I don't see three as often as I did 20 years ago. I, I don't know why that is, I think it's just like kind Hispanic. of... Hispanic. Yeah, Hispanic cultures do. Yeah, and yeah. French, French is another one. They were doing it on the British cooking show. Like, the, <laughs> yeah. the contestants were, like, um, telling each other, like, good job, well done, and stuff. And, like, they hug, and they do, like, like did the kiss thing. And it didn't oh, really? look so awkward when they did it. Cause it really doesn't look awkward when Brazilians do it, because right. they do it really slickly. Right. <laughs> so, that's good. Maybe we should start that. Yeah, well, I'm not saying we need to start something countercultural, but we need to show our affection. We need to want to have closeness. 
However, it works for us to do that. I don't think we need to do something that just shocks everybody. But, <laughs> but, but on the other hand, I think, what, what, think about this. What do you think about families that are pretty close physically? That's cool, right? You know? Uh, and you, what do you think about families where the children, the parents, have a lot of physical affection between them? You think that's a cool thing. You know, it's good that they have that kind of closeness. You appreciate that. I think we need to try to develop a family spirit among Christians. I think that's the point. We are family. And maybe we show that in various ways, but we feel that bond and that affection and that desire for closeness like we would in a family. Obviously, there have to be safeguards that this is a kiss of love and not some kind of other kiss. You know, this is not an excuse for somebody to behave inappropriately, and I think it's appropriate to exercise, you know, prudence about that. And not every kind of affection is appropriate, so we're careful about, you know, trying to do this in a respectable way. And for that reason, probably, you know, some kind of kissing ritual would be really weird. But I think doing what we can culturally to try to demonstrate our closeness and appreciation. You know, I mean... Yeah, that that's a I think a uh, an encouraging thing and a natural thing for foreigners who are in an alien land together. Comments and questions. Oh, I think we said we'd move to Jude here for a minute. So let's move.